1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Let's go ahead and say it together. Wow, I turned my microphone on. There we go. <laughs> to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Continue to be uh, blessed by our memory verse series as we stay in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, just trying to really learn this book well as we work through it together this year. We are finishing chapter 11 today. Uh, we did the first part of chapter 11 a few weeks ago and then we were blessed last week uh, by the ministry of Dr. McWilliams and now we will conclude uh, Paul's words in the second half of chapter 11 today. And before we do, I wonder if anyone in here has any neighbors that are kind of like Dennis the Menace. Anybody, I'm not dating myself by sharing that uh, illustration with our young students, am I? I think some of our young students know. My son's nodding at me that I am. He might not know who Dennis the Menace is. Um, I have some Dennis the Menaces in my house. They live, they live with me. And, uh, you know, the thing, the thing about Dennis the Menace is Dennis the Menace was a child who was really, really, really good at disrupting order. It's really good at disruption. And I am a man who covets order. Uh, I like my mornings to look a particular way. I like my kitchen to look a particular way. I like my bedroom, my calendar, my routines to look like they all fit together. I'm the guy that color codes things. So I know how everything fits and where it's supposed to go. And like a master conductor, I am making every attempt to direct some sort of order in my life. And when things are disordered or out of place, I often find my patience tested and my attitude very, very poor. I feel like one of my children is particularly attuned to being able to be a disruptor in my life. As soon as I organize something, I turn around and he's got it on the floor, taking it apart and playing with it again. I, I grasp at order in everything and I find that it often eludes me. And thus, in my life, order has in some ways become to me like an idol. I know it's an idol. Because the, the people, when people who I'm closest to in my life violate it or disrupt it or hinder it, conflict then is inevitable. I have a quote that hangs in my office. It actually hangs from the desk. I see it almost every day. I don't remember where I found it, but it speaks significantly, significantly into this reality. And it says this, quote, One of the biggest sources of conflict between me and my children is when they refuse to bow down to my idols, end quote. Such then becomes the nature of my life. I'm like the busy squirrel scurrying around, trying to make an order of all the nuts and happily preparing for leaner seasons. No, not, not, no pun intended there. Some of you... <laughs> Boy, some of you took that a little too far. <laughs> I was going to say I do this only to see rival squirrels break in and steal and disrupt my stash and make a mess of everything. But as it turns out, some of those rival squirrels may actually be nuts too. <laughs> now it's important that we recognize that not all order 
is wrong. Not all order is idolatry or bad or unjustified. As we have traipsed through uh, the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has started this chapter by revealing order that is good, that is right, and, and that is just. There is an order, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, that actually elevates the glory of God by celebrating his glorious ordering in the genders. And there's also an order governed by love which appropriates our gatherings in a way that we are coming together sensitive to the way that our culture has informed those who may be present with us. In this sense, then, we've taken great care to order ourselves so that we're purposed to bring glory to God through considering the needs of others above our own needs in our gatherings. This type of order, Paul suggests in the first part of chapter 11, is good and right. Anyone who shows up and is contentious is to be corrected and reminded that what we're doing, we're doing with the motivation of love, loving God, and loving one another well. This, and yet, today, we move to the second half of chapter 11. And we are soon going to find that there is an order that is actually very dis ordering and rather disruptive to the purposes of God for his church. The order that Paul will soon explore is an order that actually is fostering patterns of humiliation and, and is in no way a representation of the one who laid down his life for us. Paul's desire then in the portion of his letter that we're studying today is that he wants to identify those patterns of humiliation that are taking place. Then he wants to remind us of the message that we are to be proclaiming as we gather, both in word and deed. And finally, he wants to examine with us the postures that truly magnify Jesus above ourselves. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. Verses 17 to 34. And before we begin to read, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do uh, give you the praise and glory for the order that is good that you bring into our lives. The order that honors you and uh, helps us to focus on how we might be loving others in a way that glorifies you. That is good, that is good order, Lord. And, and it's order that... Even as Paul describes in the first part of this chapter, you've ordered and established from the beginning. And so we praise you for that. But now as we move into this part of the letter, we recognize that Paul's identifying some orders that exist in the church that are not honoring and glorifying to you. There are things that we do, maybe even still today, certainly in some parts of our body today, these, some of these things still exist. And we need your help, Lord. Uh, your word is here today to correct us, to inform us, to guide us to help us to see the things uh, that are right uh, and that are honoring to you. And that's what we desire. And so we pray that you'd use your word to help us grow today. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. This is Paul writing to the church. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Paul's commendations that he has shared at the beginning of this chapter have now in the second half turned sour. There is an issue at hand, one that requires his immediate attention. As it turns out, this beautiful community that God is forming on the cornerstone of Jesus requires consistent maintenance. Paul's concerned about the manner in which people were coming together for worship. He understood that healthy gathering patterns actually aid the church in accomplishing her corporate mission to bring glory to God through the building up of the body and the love of others. And so what we see is Paul's concern because how we gather as a church matters for both the glory of God and the good of one another. There was something that was existing among the people when they gathered, that as Paul explained in verse 17, was actually for the worse. That's what he says in verse 17. When you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. One of the behaviors that Paul includes is division. Look again at verse 18. I've heard that there are divisions among you. And in this letter, Paul spilled a good deal of ink already dealing with divisions. But the divisions that he deals with in chapters 1 and 4 are a bit different. Those divisions were 
over what leaders to follow, who was right to follow, who was wrong to follow. But here, believers are actually coming together for worship, and they're doing so at the expense or disadvantage of other believers. And in such, they are humiliating one another. And it's interesting here, Paul's careful. He doesn't condemn all division. Not every group in that day that was gathering and calling themselves the church was genuine. Paul alludes to this in verse 19. Take a look. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But as he's focused on the church in Corinth, this particular group of believers who have gathered and are genuinely practicing their faith with the love of neighbor and the glory of God in view, something is not right socially. Things are not working as they should. We have a word for this today, what Paul is dealing with in this text. You may have heard it. It's called classism. And it's a kind of division. It's a kind of social unrighteousness that is a part of our culture and our world today. It's an unjust social division. And we must remember that Paul's just written a few paragraphs before this one in chapter 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of who? The other. The other. The faith community in Corinth, they think they're coming together to practice the Lord's Supper. But Paul's saying, hey, when you come together like this, in this kind of divided manner, and you're not thinking about the needs of others before yourself, but you're only coming together to satisfy yourself, you're not doing the Lord's Supper. You, ever, you know, sometimes we get really hungry. And sometimes we sit down for a meal and we're very singularly focused on ourselves. I remember this happened uh, the day that I got married. That morning, uh, we got up really, really early. And I invited uh, a large group of guys, all the guys that were in my wedding party and some other men. I invited them out to breakfast with me very early in that morning. But I'm a very single-minded, duty-driven kind of person. And so that day, it was my duty to get married. So that was what was on the forefront of my mind in every moment of that day. Um, I'll tell you how guilty I am of this before. There, there used to be days where I filled in to preach in the church I served in previously. And one of those Sundays happened to be on my wife's birthday. Well, when I got up at five in the morning, it was my duty that day to preach the sermon, not wish my wife a happy birthday. Thankfully, the lead pastor of our church beat me to it. And uh, in my presence, and I felt so embarrassed, but that's how singularly minded focused I can be on a task at hand. I woke up that morning. My task was to get married, not to eat dinner. So I came to the restaurant or eat breakfast. I sat down at the breakfast table with all my friends, all the guys in my wedding party, all these other men that were in my life. And the waitress brought out all of the food on, on big trays because there was a lot of us. It was breakfast. And she started with me because I was the guy getting married. And she sat my plate down and she went around the table and served every other guy at the table. And by the time she laid the plate down on the guy who was sitting on my right hand side, my plate was empty. <laughs> she looked at me. 
And she looked at me with a face that made me immediately feel embarrassed. <laughs> she said, would you like another plate of food? <laughs> I, I had no consideration for the other men that were there to have breakfast with, with me that morning. None. I had one thing on my mind. Getting married. <laughs> Not thinking at all about the people who I was there with to be celebrating that with. I sat there rather bored the rest of our breakfast, thinking, when can I get to the church and get married? <laughs> As the church in Corinth was coming together to practice what this, this beautiful and sacred sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I, one that was to be commended, they were doing so in a very uncommendable way. The wealthy among them, those that had the social class and the status of high class and those who had economic flexibility and those who had status and socially could afford to leave their jobs early to come, they were coming to the feast first and they were eating all the food and drinking all the choice drink to the point of drunkenness. The less economically privileged, those who had to work longer hours that did not have the flexibility to attend the meals early when they were finally able to get home and get ready and get their families ready and make their way to the gathering expecting a feast. Instead, they walked in to find a social and moral famine. It was corrupt. It was broken. It wasn't working. And Paul is fuming. You can see it in the, uh, the way that he structures his sentences here. There's exclamation marks and rhetorical questions. He's angry. Divided. Drunk. Humiliating each other. Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Look at that word in 22. What? What are you doing? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Church, one way that we might define social injustice or unrighteousness is when one party is advantaging themselves at the disadvantage of another. And this division this division of social status, it has no place in the church. Christ has demolished the class divisions that our culture works so hard to order us in. And believe, believe me, it is. Our culture works hard to place us in these divisions. Christ demolishes them all. We all come, every one of us, we all come poor. We are all to remain poor in spirit. We are all then made rich and supplied with the eternally abundant, endless riches of Christ Jesus. And the people who were gathering, they couldn't see how their own social distinctions were perpetuating behaviors that were humiliating to those who had nothing. They were blind to the needs that were present within their own faith community. They couldn't see them. 
Certainly we're not considering the other as they bettered themselves and their behaviors were in no way representing the patterns of Jesus as he neared the cross. Church, we are to reflect the character of Jesus in the world that God has planted us in. That's what he's called for us to reflect the character of Jesus. Our churches, then, our gatherings, our fellowships are to be safe spaces where we can come together and rather than hide our needs or feeling as if we need to, we can make our needs known without fear or feeling that we may be treated as different or less than anyone else. We're to be places where motivated by love and compelled by Jesus' example, we are freely in the habit of disadvantaging ourselves for the good of one another. It was Jesus who did this. Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he disadvantaged himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and he did it for us. Church, he came and dwelt among us. He laid down his life. He made a sacrifice for the least of these. That all who believe would be raised up together with him. The meal that the Corinthian church was participating in couldn't be, it could not be, possibly, in any way, the Lord's Supper. Because it did not reflect in any way the attitude or the action or the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so look at what Paul says in verse 22. They want commendation. What does he say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul wants us to remember the reason for why we gather. There is a message we are to proclaim as we participate in this meal together. It's not a meal about us. It's a meal about Jesus. Food with a purpose. A dinner that aids us in becoming the salt and the light that Jesus has called us to be. It's a proclamation of sacrifice. Isn't it interesting? Of all of the ways that Jesus could have chosen to describe and illustrate his death. And he could have chosen any number of ways. What did he choose? A meal. He chose a meal. I mean, he... He could have announced it to the masses that they, as they had gathered on the hills to hear him teach. He could have proclaimed it in the synagogues. And in some ways, he alluded to it there, but not as intimately as he did in the Last Supper. At the end of his earthly life and ministry, Jesus calls together his closest companions to a table. His most intimate community, while he was on earth, he brings together. To proclaim his death. These were not perfect people. They were not people of high social class. Or high social status. They were men. And they were women. Such as you and me. By the way the image of the last supper on the screen today. Is one that is from Haiti. One of his disciples would deny him. One would doubt him. Another would betray him. Almost all. Would abandon him. But his love for them. And his love for the world and his love for the father 
compelled and moved Jesus to share this beautiful moment with his disciples. His posture in these moments is not just for us to look at and say, oh, that's nice. Look at Jesus's posture as he moves towards the cross. Church, his posture is for us. At the end of chapter 10, in the beginning of chapter 11, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. All of it comes together around this table. In the midst of the feast, the light of the world is endeavoring to teach his disciples how to shine by following in his example. With absolute humility, though he is God, Jesus is showing us how to count others as more significant than himself. There's no selfish ambition here. There's no vain conceit. He's not looking out for his own interests. Rather, he is far more concerned in the interests of others. The body of the Son of Man would soon be broken on the cross. And isn't it amazing as he gathers his disciples together, the people who are closest to him, the people who he loved the most, as he's preparing for the cross, I would be whining and complaining. That's what I would be doing. Why did it have to come to this? This is terrible. I'm being mistreated. They're judging me and mischaracterizing me and misrepresenting me. That's not Jesus. That's not his heart. What's he doing? He's giving thanks. He is giving thanks. Church, gratitude is the compass that will always direct our minds upwards. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. There's Jesus. Moments before his death, showing us how gratitude is the compass that always directs our minds upward. The example that Jesus is putting before us here reminds us that even in our suffering, even in times of uncertainty and difficulty, times of loss, times of grief, hard times in our life, we are to give thanks. Verse 24 carries the thought. Take a look. When he had given thanks. When he had given thanks. When he had given thanks. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. In the form of God, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he's performing the ultimate act of disadvantaging himself for our great eternal advantage. Paul wants the church, he wants us to simply touch the hem of what is happening in this moment when we gather. It'll take a lifetime for us to grasp it. And probably we will never truly and fully understand what this all means until we're face to face with Jesus. But the meal isn't over yet. We haven't even gotten to the blood. His body has been broken. 
And I could imagine as you sat there this evening, put yourself in the seat. You are a disciple. Many of you who sit here today, we'd call ourselves disciples of Jesus. Well, put yourselves in one of those seats. Jesus had talked about his death over and over and over again. The disciples, did they ever believe that it was real? Many of them are probably believing right now for the first time. Understanding for the first time that Jesus is actually going to die. Physically die. Maybe flabbergasted. Is that a word we still use today? I don't know. But it's becoming remarkably clear to them. His body is going to be broken for them, for us. The words of Paul here closely align. If you like to follow in the Gospels, they closely align Luke's account. Look at verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in Remembrance of me. The meal, the food, the bread, that was finished. Wine is what traditionally followed. And as the cups around the table would be emptied, so too would Jesus pour out his blood. The one who was God, born in the likeness of men, would die, allow himself to die, give up his spirit at the hands of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Church, one way we imitate Jesus is to share in the behaviors and attitudes that he displayed in his final supper. We simply cannot thrive. We cannot survive We cannot function as a faith community in a way that honors God if we are unwilling to imitate these attitudes and these behaviors. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're to be reminding ourselves that our lives are to be marked by the same postures that Jesus demonstrated. And Paul has talked earlier in this letter directly and indirectly about laying down our rights and freedoms. He's even given examples from his own life and ministry. And he's called us to imitate him because when we imitate his example, we're also imitating Christ. Though he did not sin, he became a sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. None of us. We're worthy of this sacrifice, church. None of us. I was not worthy of that sacrifice. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't pull myself up by my proverbial bootstraps. Praise God that Jesus stepped in. And this great humility, the humility that Jesus demonstrated, it should motivate all of us. And the Lord's Supper, when we partake of communion here, and we do so on a monthly basis, sometimes in certain parts of the year, we do it a little bit more frequently. When we partake of the Lord's Supper here as a congregation, we should do so with this same attitude of humility. One scholar in my studies said this, and I found it very convicting. He said, quote, The only believer then who is unworthy to receive the supper is the one who believes 
that they are worthy. End quote. No one is worthy. It wasn't our body. It was Jesus's. It wasn't our blood. The blood belonged to him. It all belongs to Jesus. It all originates from God. It's to be taken in thanks for his glory and for the good of building one another up. What a beautiful message we have to, to, to proclaim. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do what? Proclaim. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we proclaim the Lord's death by participating in the Lord's Supper, we are to do so in a way that demonstrates the same attitudes and behaviors that Jesus demonstrated in his death. And so what Paul is doing here in this portion of his letter is he's correcting the patterns of their gatherings that were misrepresenting the heart and the attitude of Jesus. And rather, he is guiding us and guiding the church towards a posture of humility, one that he identifies in verses 28 and 29. Take a look. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You may notice that at CNBC it's been our practice to take a bit of time before we serve communion. And maybe you've always asked the question, why do we do this? Why do we always say that, that we're going to pause and take a moment to make sure our own hearts and our own minds are in the right place before we receive communion? It's for these Verses here. We want to receive communion. We want to receive that meal in a way that honors God and is for the good of one another. Paul says to participate without this discernment is to bring judgment on ourselves. This is what the, the problem was in Corinth. They weren't doing this, they weren't caring about the other. Then Paul gives us a clue indicating how this is actually working itself out among the believers who have gathered in Corinth. Look at verses 30 and 31. Because they weren't judging themselves, because they weren't gathering in gratitude and thankfulness, because they weren't looking out for the good of the other, because they were only concerned about their own indulgence and their own needs and their own fulfillment. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak. And ill. Look at that. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. The direct result of broken fellowship within the body is a body that's not functioning at its fullest capacity. And we're going to see this in future weeks. We finished chapter 11 today, but the next three weeks before we start our Advent series, we're going to move into chapter 12. We're going to spend three weeks in chapter 12, and then we're going to close out and move into Advent. And we're going to see how gifts are used to help the body function at its fullest capacity. When there's division, when there's brokenness, when there's all of these things going on in the body, it's not functioning as Jesus had intended. Paul has more than spiritual realities in view here. He's looking at the physical toll, that division, that brokenness, that pride, that arrogance, that a lack of concern for each other has brought on the body. 
Now, from a pragmatic perspective, we understand that overeating and drunkenness carry adverse consequences to the body. We recognize that. But Paul seems to suggest here that misrepresenting Jesus' sacrifice in our attitudes and behaviors also can carry with it physical consequence. And we know this can be true, church. And we know the anxiety that broken relationship brings in people's lives. We know the anxiety and the stress and the consequence that mistreating one another and knowing that we're mistreating one another and dividing over silly things brings upon us. It's very stressful. It's very bad for the body. People do fall ill because of anxiety. Absolutely. I don't know of anyone who's died because of it, but it seems that Paul's suggesting that this is happening in their body. So as the people of Corinth gather, if they're gathering for the wine or they're gathering for indulgence of the food, if they're gathering for a desire to remain separate from those in the body who may be considered other, it's better off for them to just stay home rather than come partake at all. Humiliation of those with nothing is a serious offense against Jesus's body. So instead of that, we are to recognize our own unworthiness in humility. We are to be in attitudes of repentance and confession rather than marginalizing or humiliating or looking down on those that we might consider as less than. We're to judge ourselves, our own hearts. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Church, as we do this, and I recognize this, we've been in a season of this in our own lives. When we critique ourselves, when we judge ourselves, when we ask the Lord to reveal our own motivations that are less than ideal, less than glory to God, less than good of one another, he begins to do that. And sometimes it takes us to some rather uncomfortable and difficult places. Where maybe we recognize some behaviors, some attitudes, some opinions, some positions that we've held long in our lives that we need to give up and get rid of. Because in holding them, we're marginalizing or we're disordering or we're disadvantaging another group of people. In humility, we are to inspect ourselves and to ask the Lord to reveal in us our own pride. And this posture leads us to inspect our own biases, our own class that we live in. We all live in a social and economic class. Our own attitudes and our own behaviors as members of that class. And to ask ourselves if the patterns of our lives and the patterns of our corporate gatherings are accurately reflecting Oh, I loved how HUD said this last week. The kingdom and the king that we carry with us. Is our life an accurate reflection of the king? Are our corporate gatherings an accurate reflection of what that kingdom is going to look like? And the beauty of it. So he says in verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. There's a lot of things in this world that I desire to hold on to. There's a lot of things in this life, like I said at the beginning, order being one of them, that I desperately grasp at. There are seasons in my life where I desperately am trying to look for meaning, for clarity. There are times in my life where I'm desperately trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense to me. To bring about an order and a purpose. And I lose sight. I lose sight of the reality that God is in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's ordering everything according to his purpose and plan. By his design. He's working all things out in and through me. In my life. And following his patterns. And following his attitudes and his behaviors. Will make me a far better, much more complete person than the order that I try to put together all around me in my life that constantly seems to be falling apart. And so, Paul, as he works through this book, is leading us to this question over and over and over again How might we live as disciples of Jesus? And function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. Church, this is just a salt and light question, is it not? How can we be salt? How can we be light? In light of the Lord's Supper. Considering others as better than ourselves. We come together to proclaim the Lord's death. As we practice communion with a posture of humility. We partake in a worthy manner. The attitude of Jesus as our example, as our team comes this morning, let's pray. Lord, there seem to be in the Corinthian church the same challenges that we seem to have in our churches today. Desire to, to order things, to make sense of things, to make things work, and perhaps even for good intention. I can't imagine that these people were, were gathering with poor intentions. I'm sure that they were thinking that these things were all just fit and fiddle for the culture they lived in. But yet, Lord, you had quite a different plan. Jesus showed us quite a different way. There is a level of brokenness, a, a level of humility, a level of self-inspection, a level of outwardness that must be part of of these gatherings as we come together, thinking of others better than ourselves, elevating the, the needs of those that have less above satisfying our own. All of these things, Lord, are difficult, and we live in a world that's complex and makes them so much more difficult to break free from ideologies and thought patterns that hold us captive. We need your help. We need your help to love others well, Lord, because it doesn't come naturally. And we do have a lot of blind spots. I have a lot of blind spots. I miss a lot, Lord. Sometimes I do advantage myself at the disadvantage of another. And we need to have attitudes of confession and repentance regarding those times rather than attitudes of denial and pride. 
to give up and to let go rather than hold on. To look at the example of your son Jesus at that last supper and to see the beauty of of what he's doing before us and the pain and all that it was going to require of him and yet he didn't consider it. He continued. He took the cup. And that's what we desire to proclaim, Lord, that humility, that posture of sacrificial love, that attitude that puts others above ourselves. We need your help. We live in a world that makes it difficult. Some of us live with people that make this difficult. So we need your help to do it. And we can trust as we go today that Jesus will be with us, guiding us and directing us helping us to love you in the same manner that you've loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.